0: I was hoping, I went a lot of my life hoping I would be the first famous Michael Lewis and he beat me to it. Although I've had that like temptation to submit a pitch to Vanity Fair or the New Yorker as Michael Lewis. Like I'd yes, like to write yes. a story on this phenomenon that's going on and yes. Pope Francis. And conspiracy theories, or something, and see if they'll—they're willing to to take my pitch, and then, and then the other Michael Lewis will get the check. So. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of Peter's Field Hospital. My name is Mike Lewis, and I'm the managing editor of the website wherepeteris.com. Today I am joined by Dan Amiri and David Lafferty, both contributors to WPI. And Mike. Hi, Mike. Glad to be here. So do you want to be DW or or David in the in the podcast? Uh, David is fine. Yeah, yeah. Dave, Dave,
1: I don't mind Dave either. Oh, you don't mind Dave. No, no. D-dub. <laughs> D-dub is fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My parents used to call me that. So uh, a lot's been going on. Happy Easter. Um, and Easter to you too. Thank you very much. I want to start with uh, Pope Francis, as always. So guys, uh, this was definitely an unusual Easter. Uh, as everyone has been experiencing, still on lockdown from the coronavirus pandemic, and Pope Francis has carried on. I want to draw our attention, uh, Dan, both you and I did write about this, the um, Easter Vigil homily of Pope Francis. I thought it was very beautiful, and I thought it was very reassuring. Uh, there were two themes that he spoke about that that jumped out to me. one was the central theme of the homily, which was which was hope The, the other thing, and it it sort of brought together a lot of things that I had been thinking about, was the idea of how christians need to reassure others, how they need to offer consolation. Uh, Here's a quote from the homily. Everyone is in need of reassurance. And if we who have touched the word of life do not give it, who will? How beautiful is it to be Christians who offer consolation, who bear the burdens of others and who offer encouragement, messengers of life in a time of death. Now, to me, this is central. This is an illustration or a description of Pope Francis's entire idea of evangelization. Just this open and welcoming presentation of God's love to others. Dan, did you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I would lead off
2: first by saying that you asked me at the last podcast what I thought the Pope was going to talk about, and I said hope and suffering, and then you cut that part out of the podcast. So uh, I'm just going to go on the record now and say that I, I knew what Pro- Pope Francis was going to talk about before we talked <laughs> about it. Uh, Unfortunately, is- I deleted the raw file, so there's no way to- <laughs> <laughs> um, What really struck me was that uh, this is coming straight out of uh, something that Pope Benedict has talked about a lot too, which is the relationship between hope and suffering. And The very the two are very closely connected with one another because it's in our suffering that Christian hope provides the way forward. And, and this is something that Pope Francis talked about in his homily, right? So hope provides courage. And in Benedict's language, he would describes hope as performative and not just informative. Hope actually achieves in you (laughs) what you seek in in your life, which is to attain heaven, glory with God. And uh, all these themes were touched on by Pope Francis and his homily. And uh, I sort of broke it out, you know, that that line that you just mentioned right right there about, you know, who else is going to share that hope if not us. And that's really that Christian call that I, I think it's so important that we kind of lose. Yes, hope is important. Hope is a a virtue, but
0: it's also a responsibility. Who else is going to hear it if, if not from us? And Dave, I want to share another quote with you, one that speaks directly to hope. And this is probably the most frequently quoted one from that homily. Pope Francis says, tonight we acquire a fundamental right that can never be taken away from us the right to hope. It is a new and living hope that comes from God. It is not mere optimism. It is not a pat on the back or an empty word of encouragement. It is a gift from heaven, which we could not have earned on our own. Now that last bit, we could not have earned on our own. It speaks to a loving and giving God, one who cares about us and loves us unconditionally, uh, and through no merit of ours. Do you have any thoughts about this, about your own faith life, how this relates to what Pope Francis has been preaching since day one? Um, well, absolutely. I think that, uh, what Pope Francis is, is putting forward is that, you know, our,
1: uh, as a church, uh, we're, we're founded on hope. We're not, and we're not founded on, uh, fear, which I think is what, so many of us are experiencing right now, and and often uh, for good reason. You know, there's there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot of uncertainties uh, right now. Things that we just can't figure out that our our governments can't figure out, and uh, we need to place our hope in, in in something that will come after. And I think that that's the uh, the message of of Easter that throughout all this darkness, throughout all this despair that uh, there will be a resurrection that we're going to come out
0: on the other end transformed um i think that's that's what pope francis is talking about and you talk about the darkness i just think about how the first stretch of this lockdown the first stretch for most of us in this pandemic took place during lent and i think in many ways this and hopefully for many people, this was one of the most profound Lenten experiences we've ever had. Uh, Dan, do you do you get that sense? Was that how you experienced Lent at all, or, or did you feel disconnected? <laughs> it was,
2: you know, I, I thought I was going to go into Lent lamenting how I had to give up alcohol for however many days. But uh, I, I came out of Lent thinking... How much well, the same thing, but also like all these pences were just forced upon me. But I think we talked about this before. It's such a great time for the church to shine forth. And I wanna point out all these amazing Priests and uh, Pope Francis himself, who have really just put themselves out there. I mean, so many stories of these priests volunteering to to go into hospitals and and really, I mean, putting putting their lives on the line. And you talk about sharing hope with others and giving life to other people. This is. This is the church on the front lines, and I love that aspect of it. And so, you know, yeah, Lent has been a time of—it's been difficult. It's been challenging in my own way. There's, no, there's never been a time that I felt
0: proud, prouder to be a Catholic than I am today. That's interesting. What what you were uh, referring to is probably Cardinal Supeg's designation of twenty four younger priests in the Archdiocese of Chicago to be specially designated chaplains with a ministry to uh, coronavirus victims. And I know there was another priest, uh, Dominican. I think his name is Father Patrick Hyde, who's on Twitter, who announced that he had been picked for his deanery. To be a um specifically designated as a as a chaplain. Well, there was um, a priest right down the road from me
2: who had been administering last rites. I don't know the full story, but now there's a fear that he's been, you know, exposed and he's in quarantine. So it's just it wasn't even necessarily something that I think he was seeking out, like getting himself, you know, in danger. You know, he wasn't seeking to put himself in danger. It was just him doing, being a priest and doing the things that priests are called to do. And uh, now he has to be in quarantine. So,
0: yeah, uh, unfortunately the nature of this particular disease is that if, if we aren't careful, if priests aren't careful, they could be unwitting transmitters of the disease. And that's, that's one of the things is that people are most contagious with this COVID-19 when they're before they show symptoms one to three days before they show symptoms. So if a priest or anybody was to to go about their regular business, they could be infecting people left and right and then realize they're sick. So that's Mm -hmm. um, the extra precaution that has to go into that. It's it's amazing. This this is very different from, I mean, there have been some calls for,
1: uh, you know, priests to uh, bring the sacraments to people no matter what. The, the consequences no matter what the cost no matter what they've been told by their bishops and I think that's uh can be a potentially very reckless dangerous thing but this is this is something different and i, I admire the the way that the uh bishops have uh have handled this uh the way that the, the church has taken on the, the responsibility of not being part of the spread of this of this virus even though it causes a lot of suffering for, for people within the church. We don't have access to, to the sacraments in many cases. It's a very difficult time, but we're, we're all going to suffer through it together. I think that's, that's so admirable about this.
2: I have a feeling that there are going to be a number of young men who are
0: inspired to be priests during this time. Yes, yes. And one of the things, you're talking about how it's impressed you that the church has been so proactive and been so responsive and and been so cautious this is something that i i fear that the Ameri- a lot of members of the american church don't quite comprehend or haven't quite grasped is that and this is something that i've written about on subjects like uh, climate change we hear about anti-vaxxers is this instinctive rejection of expert expertise or people who are professionals in in scientific fields. The church is not a scientific authority, and people will remind you the Pope is not an authority in the area of science. So if you're not an authority in the area of science, then who is the most prudent person to go to when it comes to figuring out how to deal with these scientific issues, And exactly what's going on so that you can develop a Christian response. And my response, and I think the reasonable response, is to go to the authorities on scientific issues, which would be, in this case, epidemiologists, virologists, public health officials. David, you talk a lot about conspiracy theories. I don't know if this is an appropriate segue into that, but do you see that this mentality has grown in the American church and by American, because you're Canadian, we're going international. Uh, yeah. I mean, North American is. This is something that seems to be more pervasive, perhaps because of the Internet, but the fact that it seems almost mainstream in certain sectors of the church, to be skeptical of the scientific establishment, to be skeptical of journalistic reporting, and, and to think that they're basically to reject common knowledge or to reject the mainstream narrative of, we're not just talking about motives or agendas, we're talking about plain facts. Uh, what are what are your thoughts on this? I, I see it as not a, a, a problem that's
1: specific to Catholics or or to American Catholics. It's uh, it's it's a much more widespread problem that relates to the, the populist uh, mentality. I think in um, it's it, it's a political mentality. I think that, at its root that we that we've seen you know for the last on over the last five or six years, and part of that. Populist mentality is this idea that the world is run by uh, elites who pretend to be sort of experts, but what they're actually doing is creating mechanisms of control in order to, let's say, uh, limit personal freedoms, in order to... um, Break down the barriers between countries, and then also to attack religion, um, and particularly to attack Christianity. Now, uh, like with all, as with all of conspiracy theories, it, there's there's you know a bit of truth mixed in with the uh, with the nonsense. So, um, I mean, the, there are of course you should never just be. Completely accepting of everything you hear, you should should always listen to things critically. You know, compare the opinions of different experts. Um, but we we really can't lose that trust, um, that basic trust in in the scientific community, uh, the global scientific community, and in the goodwill of most people, including most of the political leaders in the world. Um, otherwise, we're not moving towards uh, peace. We're moving towards a sort of apocalyptic scenario where we have the kind of ordinary people or in in a Catholic context, it's usually more the the faithful remnant of the church uh, against um, a a kind of hierarchy of of elites. Um, And the church itself often gets sort of lumped into that that category of the elites. Um, Pope Francis is sometimes portrayed as being a a globalist or or, or, listening to um, the UN too uncritically and that sort of thing. So, yeah, we have to be careful to uh, avoid that kind of Manichaean uh, view of the world that we get uh, with populism. Uh, it's it, it, The world is not that uh, simple, and um, although there are good reasons to be skeptical and critical, uh, we can't just simply lose faith in reason and lose faith in science.
0: And I, I don't mean to say that we should blindly obey Authority or blindly accept things. It's just this overall skepticism. Now, to be fair, church authority hasn't exactly been stellar in the last several decades. A lot of it they've brought upon themselves, this distrust. Dan, do you have a sense of maybe why some people... Uh, automatically look at the bishops, look at the pope as uh, as elites, as globalists, as as part of a conspiracy to take down the church from from within. Is this something that you see in parish life? Is this an instinct that you can relate to at all? Well, I think it's just two
2: fundamentally different visions of what church is, and it's something I touched on in an article about how to choose a church, really, is, you know, is a church there to cater to what I believe or is a church there to teach you and to help you along, to to help you grow in holiness? And it's just two different, completely different ways of looking at things. And of course, even in this position where, yeah, the, the church is here to help us grow in holiness. We're here to learn from a church there's still a lot of room for cooperation. You know, co-responsibility is a huge area of focus. And we're we're supposed to be engaged with our church. You know, there's a lot of room for us to actually participate in the life of the church. Uh, But I think where this attitude of, you know, conspiracy comes in is this feeling of maybe you're this feeling of being left out of the church. You're feeling like you're not able to participate in the church as much as you would like. You feel like your voice isn't being heard. And so everything has become this big conspiracy against you and what you believe when I really just think the answer could be as simple as having more communication, you know, making sure that everyone in the parish feels like they're part of a community, feels like they're contributing in some way. And honestly, I really just feel like it comes down to people not feeling welcome in the church that they belong to. That's
0: very much, uh, I think there's a lot of truth behind that. Something that's baffled me almost is this idea, and and we've talked about it before, that there are a number of prominent Catholics who are blaming this pandemic on uh, whether it's immorality or the church's uh, corruption, or more specifically about the St. Francis Day ceremony that was held on the uh, Vatican lawn that's been pegged as a pagan ritual, even though that's totally untrue. It's been thoroughly debunked. There was no pagan intention behind what they were doing, and it was a matter of cultural misunderstanding. Uh, yet, there have been a number of prominent Catholics who, who in all seriousness blame the pandemic for it. Um, one priest on Facebook who I, I'm personally familiar with and I know Paul he is, uh, Father Carlos Martin's who's a priest originally from from Canada who posted on Facebook that this pandemic was brought about by paganism in the Vatican. He's, a well-known priest, very smart guy. He came to my parish. He he carries a um, collection of sacred relics with him. I think he has the largest collection of sacred relics from saints. Has a piece of the True Cross. Has a piece of the Crown of Thorns uh, that he brings around the country with him. And a lot of people show up, and it's, he gives a talk. And uh, I was totally impressed by him, by his personality. Uh, He's known as one of the foremost experts on St. Maria Goretti. And yet he's bought into this narrative. There are other people that we've discussed plenty of times. uh, Archbishop Vigano, of course, Taylor Marshall. Um, As our conspiracy theorist expert, David. (laughs) Why? I mean, this just strikes me as such... A bizarre mentality and something that's just so foreign to my understanding of Catholicism to me it's baffling but but clearly there are people with impressive backgrounds, impressive academic credentials, mainstream pastors in the church who have bought into this kind of narrative. What are your thoughts on this? Well, uh,
1: uh, first thought is just that it, it seems incredibly narcissistic to take this kind of uh, view of, of the pandemic um, I mean as much as you know we're deeply you know involved in the church and and, and matters regarding the church this pandemic is affecting everyone in the world' it's it's, it's not just affecting Catholics and but and to see it um, as the result of something so so specific to um, you know recent, Catholic uh, media nonsense. It just it just shows that you know this is the, I think the result of uh, being on Facebook too much, or reading you know being on Twitter too much, and uh, you get this kind of tunnel vision. And but that's a place where these kind of uh, I would say this is more less a conspiracy theory and more of a, a sort of a, uh, apocalyptic uh, theory. That's where these kind of ideas can thrive. That when you have that that kind of closed off view and you're only seeing what sort of site News and, and uh, Church Militant and, and these kind of organizations are, um, are, are sending your way, uh, you can develop a very warped uh, sense of what's going on. I mean, you, you can look at any other group of uh, any other religious group and you'll probably find apocalyptic conspiracy theorists there who are blaming a pandemic on things that are entirely different. Um, and you, you'll even find uh, people in... Uh, conspiracy theory like QAnon blaming the pandemic on, uh, let's say Chinese bioweapons or whatever. So there's going to be all of these kind of apocalyptic scenarios and conspiracy theories floating around out there. I just, uh, I find it sad that priests would would put that out, um, and and just allow it to be uh, shared like that. Um, I know that the priest in question who put, put this out is a member of the Companions of the Cross, and I have great respect for the Companions. They were uh, founded by uh, Father Bob Bedard, and uh, our my parish priest is uh, our priest, our are, our companions priest. Um, but
0: so I find it very disappointing to see that. It's almost as if there are we keep going back to that image of of two churches or two mainstreams, But to me, this. It's just it is astounding to me that these the church is is our mother the church is our is is our guide uh, the pope is the center of doctrinal unity he's he's basically the point at which we're all supposed to to find a, a source of truth and it seems that once formerly loyal Catholics. decide that the Pope isn't right for them, that they go down these roads, it seems to be devoid of Christian hope. It's this negative view. It's this fear of something, uh, this fear that they're going to lose everything that's sacred to them. Yet that's that's not the Christian message. Mm -hmm. And especially since we've been taught that the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That doesn't mean that only a small remnant of Catholics is going to remain faithful and the entire hierarchy is going to go overboard. There's a guarantee that Peter is the rock upon which Christ built his church. Dan, do you see the same lack of hope that I'm seeing in yeah. this in, in this type of
2: mentality? You nailed it. I think that's exactly right. And it, you just contrast the sort of messaging or the approach that Francis takes versus some of these uh, detractors or conspiracy theorists or however you want to just describe them. Um, you know, hope is what the church is about. That's what we provide to people. And when you hear this from people about, oh, it's, it's a chastisement. It's, it's, everything's a sacrilege. Everything is awful. This is not a message of hope. This is a, this is sort of that fire and brimstone message. Like if you don't, if you don't correspond to my way of doing things, you're going to hell. Or if you don't correspond to my way of doing things, the church is going to hell. Or (laughs) however however you want to go, however far you down, you want to go down that road. But um, I think, Francis, it's, it's really just, what is the church about? It's a gift of mercy. It's the gift of hope. It's the gift of life. And if you aren't out there spending your time and energy participating in this mission, then you're effectively not participating in the life of the church. And maybe that's a little bit strongly worded, but these people are doing way, way too much harm for my liking. They're out there confusing people, discouraging people, uh, giving, you know, causing despair in people or people feel like they need to look out for the three days of darkness. Like this is not the church of Jesus Christ. This is not the church of hope or the church of life. And it's, it's extremely frustrating you know all all i can do is do what we do here at where peter is is just continue to get out that the the church's message through the words of pope francis you know the church's hope the church's mercy I see this in uh, LifeSite's recent
1: reporting on Dan Burke's uh, experience, Dan Burke, formerly of uh, EWTN. Um, I have immense sympathy for what uh, he and his wife went through, Uh, both contracted the coronavirus and uh, he he suffered a great deal uh, through it, but he's come out the other end, which is uh, wonderful. But he's uh, been saying that the, the coronavirus, he now believes, is the result of impiety and and sacrilege and, in particular, communion on on the hand. He's saying that, you know, when people take communion on the hand, they don't look to uh, see if there are any uh, particles left on their hand, and then these may fall on the floor. And that's that's a sacrilege. He actually compares it to what Satanists do. Um, He says, you know, Catholics, they don't have Satanist intent, but it's the same sort of sacrilege that you would find, like, in a a Black Mass. Um, To me, that just I can't, I can't process that. I can't imagine that the way that you know my kids when they go to church when they um, receive communion that that's um, some sort of sacrilege akin to the Black Mass and that God is punishing us for for these sorts of actions. Um, it's such a profoundly pessimistic view of the church, so devoid of hope that it, it really, to me, it turns the church into an idol. It's, it turns the church into a you know, some kind of, uh, it turns our God into a, a, just a, an angry, vengeful God who will punish anyone who makes even the slightest mistake, even if it's unintentional. And that's not the the message of hope that Pope Francis is putting forward. There's something that, that, that that's trapped them in this profoundly negative view of the world uh, and of the church and of Pope Francis. And I don't know how to break into it and, and let some light in, but I, I hope that it does it does come in eventually.
2: It's one of those things that you you know if you think about it for more than two seconds, yeah, it's it'd be nice if everyone expressed reverence for the Eucharist, and yeah, it's, it's a great way for it, it would be great if everyone just did pay attention to how they received the Eucharist. But at the same time, I, I mean, it kind of gets to the point. of like, what is Burke really about? He's he's saying that if you don't if if everyone is committing the sacrilege. That we're just a horrible church. That the church leaders are have made the wrong decision. That the church leaders are condoning sacrilege. I mean, it, it, eventually it comes back to like we should have never have allowed it, and the church is wrong to do so. And 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 the
1: people, I think people are reminded um, more often to even if they are receiving on the hand, to uh, uh, you know, to be careful and to uh, to receive it with with reverence. I think that's. Uh, that's something that's always been um, emphasized to me
2: in, in a variety of in parishes that I've been part of. I mean, I, that, like, that leads into the Pajamama thing. I just don't understand the connection here. Is it is it sort of this Old Testament model of of a, a God who punishes people, and and that's what we're facing with right? That's what we're faced with right now. I mean, is that the argument? I, I think it. I think it is an Old Testament.
1: Um, it goes back to the Old Testament, but at the same time, it draws a lot on uh, prophecy. So uh, it draws a lot on uh, Fatima and uh, this idea of a, a coming divine chastisement that will happen unless, you know, certain things are done by church leadership to uh, to reform the church. Um, and... I mean, I think a lot of traditionalist groups have been waiting for this sort of divine chastisement and um, uh, and kind of reading the signs of the times for a very long time to try to figure out is it coming? Is it now? And so, any any kind of world shaking event, anything that's uh, uh, uh,
0: you know great geopolitical significance, they're gonna they're gonna see it through that that framework. And that's, that's one of the things that really bothers me. A lot of these people I followed and admired prior to this papacy, they built audiences. They seemed entirely faithful and devoted and loyal to the Pope and loyal to the church. And they've used, unfortunately, as they've turned away from the papacy and turned away from trust in the church, um they've exploited their existing audiences, like the, this father Carlos, the reason why I, I pointed out is his blog or his Facebook post had over a thousand likes, over a thousand shares, seven hundred comments, something like that. And a lot of the comments, some of the people I knew personally uh, through Catholic circles, some people I admit online. Uh, a lot of them looked like friendly Catholic people and they would, their responses were like, Oh my father, I was, I had no idea that this was going on in the Vatican. These are people who aren't following these things closely. They've probably decided to follow him on Facebook because they had a good experience at his uh, treasures of the church uh, presentation and, and visited his relics and venerated them. And, He's taking that audience—very faithful, very uh, devotional, very very pious—who uh, people who are hardworking, maybe not totally informed about church news, but that that's never been a requirement of the faith. and he's he scandalized them about something that they won't even acknowledge that there's another side to the story uh, regarding. Whether or not that was paganism that went on in the Vatican, they won't they won't recognize what the Querida Amazonia said about uh, rituals that don't have pagan intent and take into account the traditions of the of the indigenous culture. Uh, it, that's the thing. I mean, where Peter is, we we started two years ago. Uh, Dave, I think you've been with us for about a year now. Um, this is, uh, we do our part, but there are really a lot of us out there. Uh, there's Austin Ivory and, and Massimo on Twitter, defending Francis. And there's, uh, Stephen Walford put up a really good fight during 2017 and, and put out his book in 2018, but, that's the thing that that really disappoints me is even though there are a lot of supporters of Francis out there, they're they're not saying anything about these public figures that are truly leading people astray. Dan, do you I don't know you don't like to get into the into the polarization.
2: No, I will say so. You're right, Mike. I, I tend to try to stay emotionally removed from the the back and forth, but. When I do see people getting led astray that that does sort of rile in me a bit of a uh, well i guess righteous anger <laughs> i'm I'm concerned um you know people can spout on Twitter they can spout on facebook and they can they can say what they want to say but when when you actually see real life people being led astray that's that's let's wow, be on the pale now I will say you know what we do at where Peter is it's it's noble, uh, but unfortunately we're very small. And all these people with power and influence and money, they're the ones that are running big Catholic media right now. And you know, you ha you have a lot of connections with I mean, we we can detail it, but you know, Christopher Lamb's book or Austin Ivory's book, uh, a lot of these a lot of these books just go into all these connections with powerful Catholic media, the money that they have the ability they have to get their message out there and to basically just run their own show. Like just the most recent example that comes to mind is the, the co-authorship, quote unquote of a book that Benedict did not write. um, But some people insist that he did. So um, it's just this, this idea that there's a lot of people with, with uh, the ability to get their message out there and, there's not a lot of ability for us to kind of counteract that with the, unfortunately, we're, we're still growing, right, with the reads that we have. But uh, I just hope that people kind of take that into consideration as they, as they listen and, and they read our articles, that they do share things that they find positive, encouraging, hopeful, inspiring, something that they felt like they learned a little bit. So can
0: you continue sharing that with other people? I think that makes a huge difference. And don't forget to sponsor us on Patreon. <laughs> it's a little plug. Um, yeah, I mean we're doing what we can, and I know we're having an impact. Uh, unfortunately, there's uh, there are a lot of people that got a head start on us. We started in in 2018. I was hoping that we would be done with uh, the fighting and the the, the polarization and. Uh, the Dubia and Amoris Laetitia. My goal was to finish by summer 2018. And uh, then that August, uh, Viganò's testimony came out and the resistance to Pope Francis seemed to grow bigger and stronger and louder. Uh, The real world consequence, to me, what was shocking was when the young man from Austria, Alexander Shuguel, uh, tossed that figure into the tiber. And now we know it, this was entirely coordinated and funded by Taylor Marshall. It wasn't oh, a scoop by LifeSite News. It was Taylor Marshall
2: disclosing this, sort of bragging about it, if, oh. I'm, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> he, he, yeah. he was bragging about how he funded this guy's airfare and his partner, to go to Rome and do this thing. And then they basically got him out of Dodge as soon as they could so he wouldn't
0: get arrested. I mean, it was a, it was sort of an air raid, if you will. And David, you listened to the entire episode, correct? Yes, I did. Uh, it was a, a fascinating
1: conversation. It was a very, very long conversation they had. And he only revealed that bombshell in the uh, second hour of it. And um, so <laughs> I think a lot of people missed it. They've also, in recent podcasts, like a, he, he was also talking to Sugarwell about, uh, you know, encouraging people to uh, find sort of, you know, renegade priests, you know, people they just call good priests who um, will bring people um, the sacraments uh, in defiance of their bishops in defiance of, you know, public health authorities or hold underground masses. It's, it's something that that came out in that interview that I find very interesting is this, both Marshall and uh, Sugarwell, and, and I think a lot of the sort of Pope Francis resistance, um, they seem to thrive on this idea that they are somehow a kind of countercultural force, um,
0: acting kind of in the underground through social
1: media, through you know these kind of networks that they're forging um, to, uh, to form uh, what they consider to be the Sort of true church, as opposed to the church uh, that that we're all familiar with, and I think that this is a something that's grown out of this idea of Catholicism being a, a countercultural force in the world, which which it is to some extent. But I think a lot of the people who um, came into the church and, like, say the. the the 2000s, or or, or after, um, during the sort of you know, John Paul II, uh, Pope Benedict uh, era, the part of the appeal was that they saw the Church as being a sort of counterforce to um, global liberalism, uh, particularly uh, in, in the battle against uh, you know abortion and euthanasia, and so there was a sort of mystique that came with that, uh, a sense of purpose that the Uh, The church was, you know, so completely opposed to uh, the modern world. And when you see someone like Pope Francis, who in their eyes is being more accommodating, is sort of reaching out to certain groups uh, like, you know, the LGBTQ uh, community and people like that, the divorced and remarried, to them, it seems like he's making accommodations to liberalism. And so the church loses its status as that countercultural force, that sort of icon of resistance to liberalism. And so they have to find that, that feeling somewhere else. And so they've gravitated, I think, towards kind of ultra-conservatism or traditionalism in a lot of cases. And that's been fueled
2: by uh, social media. Yeah, I would I would just say as a side note before you continue here is I don't know if if any of these people are going to read the Pope's homily on the Easter vigil, but he's he's spending you know it's a short homily, but he does spend some time railing against abortion. You know, it's it's plain as day. I mean, he's he's going to be as against abortion as anyone else, but you know, it's I, I again, it's just this inability to listen to a Pope who actually. Takes care to think of more issues, to, to think of a broader spectrum of issues than just one or two. Yeah, if he's not talking about
1: that all the time, they think that that's some kind of betrayal because that's what they feel he should be talking about all the time. But yeah, I have no doubt that uh, that Pope Francis is is just as much uh, against abortion as as all
0: previous uh, popes have been. I think. Uh one thing that I've always meant to do, but I don't have the time and it's probably not worth the time, but I, I'd i be curious to see, uh, to take the seven years of Francis's papacy and weigh it against Benedict's the eight-year papacy and a seven-year stretch of John Paul II's papacy and see how many mentions of unborn, life in the womb and abortion Pope Francis has made. Because I, I feel like, He makes these statements and then they get lost in the shuffle. I mean, some of the lines that he gets knocked for uh, on the flight back from the Philippines, he talked about that line about being like rabbits. Well, that came in the middle of a response where he was actually defending Humane Vitae. And he was saying, listen there are, this is a, a, a true teaching. It doesn't mean not using contraception doesn't mean that you're going to have to have 20 children, but, and, and he went on to make this point and that they laser focused on as if he was saying that people with large families were breeding like rabbits, which w- wasn't his point at all. The, the same thing was starting
1: to happen to Pope Benedict um, because Again, you know, by the time he he had resigned, uh, you know, Twitter had, had become a thing. Uh, uh, but for in the two thousands, you know, social media was still getting going. Um, but I I remember when Pope Benedict made a particular comment about the use of condoms by uh, gay prostitutes uh, in, that it, that it might be in some way morally sort of a step towards uh, moral responsibility to use a condom. Immediately on, I remember on Drudge Report, I saw the headline, Pope says condoms okay, or something like that. Um, Totally misconstrued, uh, totally taken out of context. And I mean, you saw that starting with uh, Pope Benedict, and it just continued on with Pope Francis, but in a much more extreme way. We've got Twitter and Facebook and all of these, and all this sort of citizen journalism, going on full blast where things can just be taken out of context and blasted across the, uh, the internet
0: in a really unprecedented way. And, and I think he's, he's been a victim of that in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I wanted to relay my experience of hearing that story for the first time. I was driving and I was listening to NPR and I heard the news report that Pope Benedict has approved condoms for homosexuals. Yes. And I was, I, I almost drove off the road. <laughs> but I mean, the sad thing is EWTN and the register and CNA and all of these sources immediately wanted to jump to his defense. They immediately clarified the issue. People who would bring up mainstream people who would bring up a a misconstrued version of that story or radical traditionalist who cited Pope Benedict's, quote unquote, approval of condoms. They would say, no, no, no. What he was talking about was the intention of the person. He wasn't saying. And that's totally gone out the window. It doesn't exist for Pope Francis. Nobody, except for where Peter is, is doing that for Francis. But I think it's the same type of misrepresentation that's going on in the media. It's just that now the Catholic media is doing it. I want to change to another topic real quick. Along these same lines, but we're talking about this this silly season of of Catholic apocalypticism, uh, this distrust of the common sense narrative these beliefs in conspiracy theories these wild supernatural ideas about god punishing people by sending a this plague uh, upon humanity one thing that early on i thought that people like taylor marshall and steve Skojak and a lot of these mainstream critics, Robert Speyman, uh, Thomas Wynandy, these, these prominent critics of Pope Francis, I thought there was an additional level of, uh, of seriousness to them. I thought that maybe they like to fan the flames of, oh, this quote uh, from this interview by Scalfari that Pope Francis made, I thought they were doing that to sort of fan the flames and, and get their, get their audiences hyped up, but they didn't really, I couldn't believe that they really believed this stuff. Uh, the moment where my jaw dropped was when that letter that was signed by, uh, a number of prominent theologians that formally accused Pope Francis of heresy, the one that, uh, the Dominican Father Aiden Nichols signed, where it actually in their list of complaints about Pope Francis talked about the rainbow cross that he wore, which was a um Latin American Catholic Youth Program put it together, the colors were not in the same order as the pride flag. Each of them represented a different region of Latin America. There was a whole worksheet behind it. It was debunked on on Twitter. It was debunked in the blogosphere. There were articles saying that, no, this is not the gay pride flag. And then that staff, that um, Crozier, that um, Francis used, that people said it was a witch's stang. And the fact that, that those two urban legends, that those two totally false stories found themselves in a document that purported to be by serious theologians making serious charges against the Pope, it, it, it blew my mind. But now um, what we're seeing with Taylor Marshall, what we're seeing with Archbishop Vigano and Dan Burke is they really do believe this stuff. It's it's incomprehensible to me that people who should have more common sense actually think that these wild things that have no basis in reality are true and they accept them as fact. Now, Dave, I know you've talked about the anti-Francis vortex. And I don't know if this is related to that, but it one thing that i I know I know Dan and some of the other contributors have noticed is that the moment that that these public figures decide to take that final step to turn against Francis, they enter into this void or they start going down this path of of holding these more and more bizarre positions and and become more and more extreme um and i think that this coronavirus pandemic and the response to that has been has been similar uh am, am i am i speaking to you here is, is uh, do you understand where i'm going with this um do you have any thoughts along this this train of thought
1: yeah i see uh i, I get what you're saying that um this is not uh in most cases i mean some people call them you know grifters, right? Um, people trying to uh, make money off uh, generating controversy about the church. Um, I, I think that in some cases, you know, they are making money off this, but in some cases, no, it's, it's more than that. They they really, really do believe it, um, or at least they, they seem to, because, yeah, there is a, a, a progression. Um, they keep going uh, further and further into the, the sort of outer reaches of I guess extreme uh, traditionalism and that sort of thing. Um, of course, they never actually go beyond, right? Like they never actually make that that final break. Um, and so that shows that there is, I think, a, a need for attention. I mean, it, it's not just about money, but it's also about attention to bring uh, attention on what they have to say. Um, if they actually took that step um, and left the church, uh, completely rejected the authority of, of Pope Francis, or um, if they adopt uh, some of the, the conspiracy theories that, that say that, that Pope Francis is not not really uh, Pope, um, that would that would sort of place them in the uh, in the, the lunatic fringe. Um, so they have a, an interest in staying just in that that kind of perfect area where they can generate as much controversy as possible while still be considering considered part of somewhat part of
0: mainstream uh, Catholicism. Dan, um, just to close, I, bringing us back from the surreal and back to the reality of Easter, you wrote a great piece about hope and about how uh, the resurrected Christ brings us hope and how hope is central to the Christian message. How does Pope Francis give you hope with regard to the future of the church? And how how can he give help to Christians who are maybe worried about the future or uh, fear the coronavirus or are distrustful of what they're hearing on the news do you think he has something that he
2: can offer to them? I think that Pope Francis would be the first to tell you that he offers nothing to people <laughs> except for what Christ has already offered. And I think this is the message that Pope Francis has consistently given. You know, he's he's here to to speak to Christ, his gift of mercy. And coming back to this homily, you know, this this hope is, Is really a remembrance. It's something that's happened. It's something that we we remember, but we also embody it. We live with it. We look forward to it. And I think Pope Francis is just constantly calling us to um, just remind us of what Christ has already done. And he does it in his words, I would argue, very practically, very beautifully, very accessibly is something that I think you know, someone who may, may be coming to the Catholic Church for the first time, they could read God de Exaltate and actually learn something and read. and It's not impenetrable. And uh, I just think he's accessible in his writing, but also in his example. And I think that does give me hope for the future because it, it points to a church that is still getting back to its roots. It's still looking back to that event in history and, and walking forward with Christ. And I think,
0: uh, as long as the church can do that, we're going to be okay. And Dave, uh, you've been uh, a little bit silent. You've written one piece recently, we haven't heard a lot from you this Lent. Um, yeah. I was wondering if there's anything in particular, uh, about Pope Francis during this pandemic that has really stood out for you and that you think others might benefit from whenever lent comes along i um i always i don't usually give up anything
1: in particular uh, i know a lot of people do that but um, i usually find that okay something's going to come along during lent that's going to challenge me spiritually and it's going to uh, kind of put me to the, the test and and i always i always have faith that that's going to happen and and i did this time and yeah, definitely, something came along, and that was the uh, the pandemic. And you know, it it really did. Um, it took me some time to try to figure out, you know, really what's going on um, and how to respond to it. But I think actually, the, the beacon uh, through a lot of this for me has been Pope Francis. Um, and like like Dan said, it's not that he's you know what what he's offering as a person is also I think very important and he shows that he is one of us right like he's he's going through this lockdown just like anyone else he's uh you know suffering from the same sort of deprivations dealing with the same confusion about the future um so just on a a very human level i really appreciate him being so visible and so willing to talk very frankly about the confusion that we're all seeing like what he uh brings to us ultimately is is know the message of Jesus and this message this message of hope and that's that's what I've been clinging to and that's what's uh, brought me through this, this time so
0: far well thank you very much guys for joining me I want to wish all of our listeners a very happy Easter stay safe and see you next time